afternoon. I'm Charles Lee. And I'm Elise Kovic. And this is the Grok Science Show. Coming up on today's program, we'll be joined by Antonio Damasio. He'll talk about his book, Self Comes to Mind. So you want to stay tuned for all that, plus the Grokatron 5000. It's coming right up here on the Grok Science Show. Rock Science Show. Well, consciousness is something that most of us take for granted. The world flows seamlessly through our mind, and we form a coherent worldview that integrates past, present, and future. But how does consciousness arise, and can science provide the answers? Well, join us today to discuss this issue is Professor Antonio Damasio. Professor Damasio is the director of the University of Southern California's Brain and Creativity Institute. He is the author of numerous scientific and popular works on the subject, including Descartes' Errors and The Feeling of What Happens. His latest release, Self Comes to Mind, Constructing the Conscious Brain, continues this exploration for a general audience. And we're very pleased to welcome you today, uh, Professor Damasio, to the show. Well, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Pleasure to join you. Well, it's certainly our pleasure, and this is really a fascinating book, Self Comes to Mind, in which you talk about uh, a sort of scientific view of looking at consciousness in the brain. Is it possible to attack the problem of consciousness scientifically? Well, yes, I think so, and uh, that, that's exactly the effort and the, the, the point of the new book, Self Comes to Mind, is uh, the presentation of uh, a number of new facts some of them old but seen through a new lens and some of them actually quite new facts that only came to light in the past decade that give us uh, some kind of uh, grip on this very major problem as you say because what we're talking about is the ability to understand how the brain allows us to be aware not only of our own organism but also of the surroundings of that organism and allows us eventually to reflect on that knowledge that we gain by being aware of self and being aware of surroundings. So there are a number of historical approaches to looking at this, uh, both sort of a personal, reflective kind of approach, a behavioral and a uh, neuroscientific. How have these approaches evolved to current modern-day approach? Well, they, as you say quite correctly, the traditional approaches include the most natural one, which is our own introspection. We, we are capable of looking at our own mind, of having a sense that it is our mind and not the mind of somebody else. We are able to observe what is going on in that mind. And the introspection is, of course, a very direct and sound avenue up to a point. Of course, it can get us into some problems because it may, for example, allow us to intuit that the mind is something very, very different from the physical processes and biological processes that we have in the brain and that we have in the rest of the body. And that is, in my view, as I explain in the book, a false intuition. Then there's the, the approach of examining the behavior of others. 
and others that may be like us and that we realize when they behave like us, they probably have minds like our own and you have some indication of what may be going on in their minds. It's a bit of a guesswork, but it's a very sound guesswork most of the time. Then we have this possibility, which is, of course, comes together with the development of brain science, uh, which is the possibility of examining the brain as it is related to mind and self. Uh, and that's something that has been here for a while in a variety of methods, uh, like, for example, studying neurological patients that have problems uh, with consciousness. But more recently, this has developed extraordinarily because of, of uh, the advent of new methods of imaging, both structural brain imaging and functional brain imaging, which in a totally non-invasive way can give us a glimpse of how the brain is operating in a given part during a certain task that may have to do with mind processes and even with the processes of self. And finally, and this is something for which I call a lot of attention in this new book, there is the evolutionary approach, which I think is absolutely essential. If you take the traditional three approaches, first of all, it's very difficult to to, to marry them to each other uh, and to align them. And we're far more able to do so when you look at mind and self in the perspective of evolution and we look at the history behind this phenomena and we look at different species, we look at different organisms and we ask the question of whether or not they give any sign of having mind and self of being conscious and when you do so we discover that in fact there is a long trajectory that comes all the way from very simple organisms that do not even have brains all the way to us but that is pointing to the late development of consciousness in the way that we experience today you and i so this evolutionary perspective, what is the evolutionary advantage, do you think, for consciousness to arise in organisms? Right. The, the, the way to put it, I think, is as follows. Does consciousness give you anything that you would not have without consciousness? And by the way, you could ask the same question about the mind itself. And the answer is absolutely. And you could say that when organisms by you know in the course of evolution when variations occurred in organisms that allowed brains to make maps of the world of the world inside and outside their organisms and to allow those maps to become images an enormous advantage appeared and that is the advantage of forming a very detailed representation of something that may be, for example, an opportunity or maybe a threat. So if you have the possibility of forming very precise map of, uh, for example, a predator that is coming towards you and that threatens your life, you are, will be much better equipped to recognize the predator, to run away from it, or to fight it with some precision in your actions. Likewise, if what you're representing is not a threat, but rather an opportunity, which may come in the form of food or drink or, or, or mating. So the presence of maps and the, the fact that they are the, the basic 
token of what becomes a mind is in fact an enormous advantage and uh, nature has recognized that by naturally selecting it and by having brains that repeatedly across species clearly have the possibility of making neural maps and images. But then you may ask, well, fine, so, so, so far so good, we understand that, that minds are, are helpful. What about consciousness? Why do we need to know that any of this is, is going on? And my answer to that is that having a self, which is, of course, as I describe in the book Self Comes to Mind, the passport into consciousness, having a self allows us to be concerned with what is going on in the world around and in the world within. So gathering together this information around the self allows the self to be the pivot, allows the self to be the reason why you're having all these images in your mind and allows you to become much more concerned with what you're going to do about it. So rather than drifting off into some problem that would be useless for your survival or your well-being, no, you're going to be very concerned with the issue of survival and well-being. And I think this is a very critical issue because, as you will remember from what I write in the book, I regard the presence of brains to begin with, and then later on of minds and consciousness, as something that is a pure servant of life. We have brains because we have a problem that as living creatures we face, which is managing our life, and managing that life in a way that permits us to stay away from disease and, uh, of course, from death as well, and, if possible, regulate it in the direction of well-being. That is the reason of being for brains in the first place and for minds and self, which is the entry into consciousness. There are certainly distinctions between sort of the self-consciousness, which kind of arises, the reflectiveness of being aware of being aware, and just basal level of consciousness. Where does self-consciousness really come in as being even more evolutionarily uh, important? Right. I mean, we get to self-consciousness, which, by the way, is a, a tricky, is a tricky term to use because you, you can have self-consciousness as an abstract category of. Uh, within the, the, the large phenomenology of consciousness, or you can have self-consciousness in a very trivial sense. For example, you, Dr. Lee, becoming self-conscious uh, in the middle of our interview, <laughs> which is the way in which many people use the term. Of course, that was not the way you were, you were using it. But the, the self-consciousness in the sense of being able to reflect uh, on the self and uh, on its issues is something that is a byproduct of the highest level of self, which in the book I describe as the autobiographical self. You know, I talk about levels like the proto-self, the core self, and then this very important level, which does have to do with our biography, with the narrative of our lives, the fact that we know details about when we were born and where and to whom and uh, what were our likes and dislikes and our families and our friends and so on. That's a narrative that each of us can tell after a few years of life and that gives us a perspective on the past. Uh, and that, by the way, gets together with something that is part of the autobiographical self, which is the anticipation that we make by having planned of what our future may turn out to be. And 
and these processes are the ones on the basis of which we are very often engaging in self-reflection. Because we know so much about our story and because we know about what we want in terms of taking the story into the next chapter, we, we reflect upon it. And by the way, we engage very often in sort of rewriting that narrative and polishing it and uh, making it uh, trying very often to forget about the negative parts of the of the narrative and uh, and make the, the the best parts count the most which is a very adaptive structure uh, strategy by the way what evolutionary advantages changes to the brain have occurred that have allowed the development of consciousness? There are certain structures that have been developed that have been putatively important for uh, maintaining consciousness. Right. So you, you really, you know, I, I take a very controversial stand in the book. I, you know, normally, and this even applies to some of my past work, we've spent an enormous amount of time looking around the cerebral cortex and literally blaming it for the, all the, the, the goods of consciousness. And I think that this is certainly true to a great extent, but there's something that has been systematically overlooked, which is the enormous role that is played by the brainstem, which is a very old structure that we share with many other species, and that in essence is contributing a bringing together of the maps of the organism and allows the brain to know what is the state of each of its myriad sectors inside the body. Uh, and of course, it's essential in order to run the process of life. You cannot run life, you cannot run the, 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 the operations of homeostasis if you do not have a part of the brain, in fact, many parts, that together know what is going on. And if there's something that is out of the way and is falling out of balance, needs to have a corrective action. So this is the first part of the process, and it is something that has been there for a long time, which, by the way, indicates clearly that the existence of minds with at least a simple self and therefore some consciousness is not something of today is not something that is exclusively human, it's something on the contrary that is available to numerous other species. And then you have this thing that is in fact typical of very complicated brains, uh, namely the brains of mammals, and in particular the brains of primates, which is the cerebral cortex, which no doubt has grown more, not just in size relatively, but in of complexity, and that allows us the incredibly fine mapping of the world, the mapping through all the perceptual channels like vision, hearing, touch, uh, smell, taste, position in space, and so on. And that ability to create a wealth of images that create the contents of our mind, that, of course, is something that needed to exist in order for us to experience the mind the way we do today. 
So previously on the program, we've had uh, other authors, uh, scientists talking about this issue of consciousness. Gerald Edelman and uh, Christoph Koch have been, both been on the program, and they talk about this view of the cortex uh, giving rise to consciousness through sort of ensembles or coalitions of, of different cortical and thalamic regions that in synchrony uh, sort of consistent with your view, or is it different? Oh, yeah, absolutely consistent. You know, I the, the views of... Uh, Jerry Edelman and Christoph Koch are not exactly the same, but you're quite correct that both give a great value to the cerebral cortex. I think that uh, Gerald Edelman also realizes that there's a contribution that comes through systems of value, which is, of course, what I'm talking about when I talk about regulation of life at the level of brain stem is not particularly calling attention to the brainstem in his work, but he would recognize the importance of systems of value, and so they are two quite compatible. Uh, the other thing that is very compatible with the, the Edelman's view is the fact that you need to have synchrony, by the way, compatible with the views of other authors, for example, Wolf Singer. There has to be synchrony of events especially in the cerebral cortex, for certain things to appear together and therefore to give us the construction of events the way we have going on in the mind. But the, the thing that is very important to emphasize here is that those descriptions that you're, that you're quoting in regard to, for example, Gerald Edelman, have to do with the construction of what I call the mind not necessarily the construction of what I call the self. So in order to, and uh, what I'm addressing in this book, which is the reason why it's called Self Comes to Mind, is the construction of the self. You can call it the self itself. So in, in addition to having a mind, which lots of species can have, we, and by we I mean we and many other species like us, will also have this level of self, which is built from neural maps, like the rest of the mind, but turns out to have an organization that points to the organism. It's as if within the whole panorama of mind, you now have this protagonist that is being organized by bringing together images that describe the organism. And when I say the organism, you can say almost as a synonym, the body. The body is represented in the process of the mind. And without having the body, and of course all that goes with the body, which includes states of pain or states of pleasure, you have absolutely no hope of generating consciousness as you and I experience. I'm curious, uh, maybe to close, what do you think will really be required to achieve a complete scientific understanding of how self comes to mind? Well, first of all, I think we need more work that centers not only on building the mind process, all that aspect of perceptions that I uh, mentioned earlier and, and in, at, at which the cerebral cortex is such a fantastic, fantastically important structure. But then we need more understanding and more testing of some of the proposals that I have in Self Comes to Mind regarding how you actually built this other additional structure that is the self. And then we need a tremendous amount of attention paid to the fact that for self to emerge, 
you need to bring together body and brain. And I think that the proposal in self comes to mind is the idea that that joining of the two occurs largely at the level of, uh, level of the brain stem. And at that level, we have the power to generate something which is absolutely vital for consciousness to be the way we have it, and that is the generation of what I call primordial feelings. Without the possibility of feeling together with our thinking, we have no consciousness in the way we have, because you and I at this moment are not just having perceptions, thoughts, ideas, and so on. We're having all of this, but we feel that all of this stuff is happening in our organism. That is an inevitable accompaniment of our state of consciousness. We feel it belongs to us, it's within us. And in order to get to the answers about the neural basis of consciousness, I think we need to go along those lines, which is what I'm pointing to in self comes to mind, and we need to do many, many years of research in order to transform some of these hypotheses into facts or come to the conclusion that they're wrong and deny them. Well, a lot of work for a lot of scientists uh, yet to come. Absolutely. <laughs> work for several lifetimes. <laughs> well, good news, and certainly a fascinating book. The uh, book, again, is called Self Comes to Mind, Constructing the Conscious Brain. And Professor uh, Damasio, I want to thank you very much for joining us today for a very fascinating discussion and joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you very much for inviting me. A pleasure. Thank you for your question. Right. Thank you. Take care. Well, uh, fascinating uh, discussion on consciousness. Fascinating, <laughs> fascinating indeed. indeed. Charles loves the word fascinating, everyone. We're doing a tally. I think there should be a game. It is. It's now a drinking game, probably at Caltech or Berkeley right now. How many times does Charles say fascinating? And take a shot every time I do. And you might not be conscious after all that. So. <laughs> that was full circle. <laughs> I, I knew it was going somewhere. Anyway, thank you for listening in to the Grok Science Show today. We look forward to you tuning in in two weeks. Indeed. So we'll be back with more from the Grok Science Show. I've been your host, Charles Lee. And I'm Elise Kovic. And, of course, if you'd like to see us on the web, our web address, www.groks.net. Email us, science at groks.net. And we're on Facebook and Twitter. Have a great afternoon.